You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. But Elisha said, Hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh. Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For Yahweh had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, and ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent, and carried off things from it, and went and hid them. Then they said to one another, We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now therefore come, let us go and tell the king's household. So they came and called to the gatekeepers of the city and told them, We came to the camp of the Syrians, and behold, there was no one to be seen or heard there, nothing but the horses tied and the donkeys tied and the tents as they were. Then the gatekeepers called out, and it was told within the king's household. And the king rose in the night and said to his servants, I will tell you what the Syrians have done to us. They know that we are hungry. Therefore, they have gone out of the camp to hide themselves in the open country, thinking, when they come out of the city, we shall take them alive and get into the city. And one of his servants said, Let some men take five of the remaining horses seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, and the king sent them after the army of the Syrians, saying, Go and see. So they went after them as far as the Jordan, and behold, all the way was littered with garments and equipment that the Syrians had thrown away in their haste. And the messengers returned and told the king, then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seah of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of Yahweh. Now the king had appointed the captain, on whose hand he leaned, to have charge of the gate. And the people 
trampled him in the gate so that he died, as the man of God had said when the king came down to him. For when the man of God had said to the king, Two seahs of barley shall be sold for a shekel and a seah of fine flour for a shekel about this time tomorrow in the gate of Samaria. The captain had answered the man of God, If Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could such a thing be? And he had said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. And so it happened to him, for the people trampled him in the gate, and he died. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 803 of this podcast. Yes, you saw the title and you were drawn in. It's true. I'm going to talk about the Barbie movie in this episode coming from the perspective of a man who's been married for going on 18 years, who is also the father of one daughter who is 10 years old and eight sons. And I watched this film with my wife and our eight sons and our one daughter. We're going to talk about the Barbie movie and what my family, what my household, what I myself thought of it in this episode. And more than just what we thought about it, we're going to talk about the film from the standpoint of the question, was it really a comedy? But before we get into that, which will be the main topic or the main focus or the vehicle for exploring several other connected topics to what do girls play with? What do women think of themselves and their role in the world? Before we get into all that, let's talk about Second Kings chapter 7, which is what we started the episode with. I read for you that chapter where Elisha promises food and then the Syrians who are besieging the city of Samaria up and run. They have the chokehold on the city of Samaria. The king of Israel is at their mercy. It's just a waiting game at this point. Nobody's apparently coming to relieve Israel or to lift the siege or to fight the Syrians. They just have to wait for the city to surrender. But then it turns out actually they've all run for it and they threw their stuff behind them as they ran because they actually, you find out, thought that somebody had come to lift the siege. In fact, a lot of somebodies with chariots and horses. They heard the sound of an assembled army coming against them, coming down on them hard, and they panicked because they weren't ready or they didn't really feel so strong themselves and they ran for it. And who finds out? Who is it that delivers the news? It's lepers. It's four men who were lepers. And this, if it were made into a short film, this would be a very funny short film in its own way, because these four lepers 
they do the very human thing, the very common thing. They live it up in the Syrian camp when they discover that it is empty. But it starts out, as we're introduced to them, that they're discussing what they should do. And they're at the entrance of the gate. Lepers would be on the outskirts of society, not welcomed in because you don't want everybody to get leprosy. They're just in a perpetual state of quarantine at exclusion. These lepers have a condition that nobody else is going to want to have. And the way to keep from getting it is to keep away from them. But then they're also hungry, like all the rest of the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria. They're also in danger and they are talking among themselves. If we enter the city, we'll die there because the famine is in the city. There's no food in the city. We'll die there. If we sit here, we'll also die. Why don't we just roll the dice and let's go over to the camp of the Syrians? Maybe they'll spare our lives. It's worth a chance. What do we have to lose? We're definitely going to die if we don't do something. It can only go up from here. And maybe if they killed us, it would be a mercy. And let's just get it over with instead of it being a long, drawn-out thing. So they arise after discussing this. At twilight, they go to the camp of the Syrians, but there's nobody there. There's nobody in the camp. Everybody's run for it. And they do what is so typical, what of course they would do. They have the run of the place. And they start gathering up treasure and hiding it and burying it like there's squirrels who have found a cache of nuts, stowing it away for the winter. They're going to hide this treasure and enjoy that they have the run of the camp. And then their consciences get the better of them. They're convicted and they realize what we're doing is not right. There's a whole city of starving people just right over there. And we should probably tell them that the Syrians have fled. And you can almost just picture in your mind four buddies, four friends that you either were one of their number or you knew them. And just picture those four friends starting to talk through this. One of them saying, this isn't right. We should tell the people of Samaria. We should tell the king of Israel. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. We should. I was thinking the same thing. So they do, right? They go and they announce at the city gate that the Syrians have fled. And initially, the (laughs) reaction from the king of Israel is, this is just a trick. This is a trap. No way. No way. The Syrians are just going to ambush us when we get out there. But you can't just stay in the city forever. What if it's not a trick? What if it's not a trap? What if actually the Syrians have fled? There's no reason that is going to occur to somebody who's thinking only in material terms, why the Syrians would flee. Certainly they didn't flee because four lepers were coming from Samaria trying to surrender to them. But then the king of Israel, as he's done before, is forgetting God. He's forgetting God and he has not factored in that God himself may have sent angels, a whole army of angels, to chase off the Syrians. Either way, the servants of the king of Israel lean on him. One of the servants, 
says, let some men take five of the remaining horses, seeing that those who are left here will fare like the whole multitude of Israel who have already perished. Let us send and see. So they took two horsemen, (laughs) not five, two. So this got whittled down. Apparently they're thinking, well, if we still have five horsemen, five horses for them to ride on are also five horses that we could eat. But this is a losing proposition. It's just delaying the inevitable if the Syrians haven't fled and if you're not willing to check it out. They do send two, and sure enough, the Syrians have fled. The people of Israel, they go out and they plunder the camp of the Syrians. And all of a sudden, there's food again because there was plenty of food in the camp of the Syrians. But then what was it that Elisha had told the one who was sent to fetch him, to get him? What was it that Elisha said? Tomorrow about this time, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? This is a scoffing reply. This is not a genuine question. This is a rhetorical question, which is to say this is an impossible thing. Even for God, this is irreverent. This is unbelief, and he didn't just keep it to himself. So Elisha says, you shall see it with your own eyes. You will see, but you will not enjoy the food. And so it comes to pass. The one who did the scoffing, even when the evidence would be right there to prove that he shouldn't have been so unbelieving, he won't get to enjoy it. He'll get to see before he dies that he was wrong and how wrong he was, but he's not going to get to enjoy the benefits of seeing that he was wrong. And sometimes it's like that. Sometimes before the end, maybe right before the end, we're able to see that we were very badly mistaken about the most important questions. And we made the wrong calls. We said things we shouldn't have said based on that. We did things we shouldn't have done based on that. We didn't say the things we should have said. We didn't do the things we should have done, but all because we rejected the truth about the very most important things in life that you should know and that you should believe and that you should live according to. In the case of this captain, he gets trampled in the city gate because there's such a rush back into the city to get this food. People are hungry. People have been so hungry that they're cooking and eating things that you ought not to eat. Dove dung the head of a donkey, children. And here is decent food, good food. What a relief. They're saved by God himself. And this captain is trampled to death. And that's the end of his story. Is this chapter, here's a question for you, in keeping with the question we'll ask as we go into the main body of this episode about the Barbie movie, is this chapter a comedy or a tragedy? Well, I suppose it depends on who you are in the story and whether the story ended up better for you than it started out, or at least as good as it started out. If you're God, there's no change in status. None of this harmed you, damaged you, injured you. If you're Elisha, he was fine the whole time, really. Why the king of Israel thought that he could have Elisha murdered, calling it an execution, because 
You wanted to blame somebody. You wanted to scapegoat Elisha for the fact that Samaria was in such a tough spot with Syria. Elisha was totally safe the whole time. So it's not really, I would say, a comedy for him because he has no reversal of fortunes, not truly. And it's certainly not a tragedy for him. For the people of Israel, for the people of Samaria, perhaps it's a comedy because it ends about as well as it started, maybe with the exception of those who have starved to death or who have lost loved ones. They're still alive at the end, but maybe they've learned an important lesson. And maybe in that sense, actually, they're better off than they were at the beginning of the story. But then that really is the question. Do we believe that they're better off at the end of the story than they were at the beginning of the story? How about the captain? It's a tragedy for this captain. It's a personal tragedy that he had so much unbelief and he expressed it in such a scoffing way. And then he got trampled to death just as food was pouring back into the city. He would have benefited from that, but for his unbelief. So it's certainly not a comedy for him, but maybe it's a comedy for everybody else. Their situation improves because they see that that unbelief comes to a bad end. And that's a cautionary tale. And that's cathartic in its way. And it's cathartic for us because as we read this, we realize that the consequences are very real for being an influence of unbelief on those around us. Not just personally denying that God can do precisely what he means to, but then also trying to influence others as well to unbelief, to hardness of heart. It's cathartic for us to see that that comes to a bad end, and so don't be like that. If you see some of that tendency, any at all, in yourself, stop being double-minded and put that away. Repent of that and agree with God. But again, the question of, is this a tragedy? Is it a comedy? It really depends on who you are, what your condition is at the beginning of the story, what your condition is at the end of the story. If you're the lepers, by the way, I'd say this is rather comic. This is all very funny and delightful. And your situation is better than it was. You didn't have all this treasure at the beginning. You were living on the fringes, on the outskirts, and here's this treasure. And maybe with all this treasure, you also go and see the man of God, the prophet Elisha, and you ask for healing. And maybe he heals you and you actually get to enjoy this treasure. It doesn't say that in the text, but maybe that's a possibility that's open to them to where actually their situation is greatly improved because they see what God can do and has done and they want some of that blessing for themselves personally. Maybe, possibly. But again, we see here situations in which the starting condition may worsen and then improve or the starting condition may worsen and then it gets even worse. And by the end of it, the only Silver lining is if you can learn a cautionary tale, if you can learn a lesson from how this other person in the story, real or imagined, suffered, how they fared poorly, how they came to a bad end. That's all the commentary I have for 2 Kings chapter 7 for this episode. In our next, of course, we'll get into 2 Kings chapter 8, where there is 
lots of regime change. There's famine, but there's also a changing of the guard. Who is going to be king? You won't want to miss that. So do hit subscribe if you haven't yet so that you get the notification when tomorrow's episode, Lord willing, it's tomorrow, is published. But for now, let's do transition. Let's do start talking about the Barbie movie because there's a lot to say. Barbie, as you may know, is kind of a big deal. As far as toys go, you don't get much bigger than Barbie. You get Lego, Nerf, Barbie. And those three make up a lot of the toy department. And they have. They've made some very successful and long-running toys. And the way I remember it growing up in the good old days, were they so good? Were they so old? In the days of my childhood, we'll put it that way. The way I remember it is you had the boys section of the toy department and you had the girls section of the toy department and the boys section was pretty well dominated by Legos and Nerf guns. And the girls section was pretty well dominated by Barbie, especially Barbie. And then there would be other various brands that would come and go of dolls or stuffed animals or play sets, toy food, toy kitchen, costumes, girls playing dress up and pretend, but it was pretty much that. And then in between you'd have maybe board games, bicycles would be not far off, skateboards, scooters, rollerblades, roller skates, sporting goods in a generic sense. But that was pretty much what it was, that Barbies were girls' toys. Legos, I suppose, could be either, especially early on. As time has gone on, they've tried to branch out over at the Lego company and have girls' Legos as well as boys' Legos. And you know the difference. Why? Because the girls' Legos are typically in pastel colors and they are differently themed or they're pink and purple. And that's how you know that they're girls' Legos. And the boys' Legos are normal colored. But Barbie is, if there's any brand of girls' toys, or what I think of as being girls' toys, it's Barbie. And Barbie is such a big deal. For instance, when I do a search at the Wall Street Journal, WSJ.com, all I search is Barbie, I get 238 results. 238 articles at the Wall Street Journal reference Barbie. The Wall Street Journal. It's big business. They'll reference Barbie because Barbie makes money. And it making money is to say that Mattel is selling Barbies and people are buying Barbies. They buy Barbies because they see a value in Barbie because Barbie is something of an institution for girls. There's a draw there. There's an affinity. There's something of a tradition. Barbie is a feature of modern American culture. But just so you know, in case you're wondering, what are some of the results for Barbie at the Wall Street Journal website? Of course, you have more recently plenty of references, even just passing references to the Barbie movie in the television or film or media and marketing 
categories or sections of the Wall Street Journal. But you also have articles exploring more of the backstory from the standpoint of business or the history of this company or this brand. You have, she was the Oppenheimer of Barbie. Her invention blew up. Mattel co-founder Ruth Handler engineered a new way of selling toys. Then she created the most popular doll in history. Ben Cohen published that piece July 20th, 2023. Scrolling on down, Beth DeCarbo published December 5th of just last year. Barbie has had a lot of careers. Here are the most popular. For those who have shorter attention spans, there's also visual stories. Barbie's dream job, her 10 most popular careers, because some people are busy or they have a short attention span. They don't want to really read an article. They just want to see the pictures and have quick bites of information to go along with the pictures. That was December 27th of last year that that one, that scrolling marquee of Barbie's careers was featured. But again, this is at the Wall Street Journal. There are 13 pages of results for Barbie. Hopping over to Wikipedia, we find quite a lot more. Barbie is a fashion doll created by American businesswoman Ruth Handler, a woman, if you couldn't tell from the name, manufactured by American toy and entertainment company Mattel, which was co-founded by Ruth Handler, by the way, as mentioned, and introduced on March 9th, 1959. The toy is the figurehead of an eponymous brand that includes a range of fashion dolls and accessories. Barbie has been an important part of the toy fashion doll market for over six decades. Mattel has sold over a billion, with a B, Barbie dolls, making it the company's largest and most profitable line. The brand has expanded into a multimedia franchise since 1984, including video games, computer animated films, television web series, and a live-action film. Barbie and her male counterpart, Ken, have been described as the two most popular dolls in the world. Mattel generates a large portion of Barbie revenue through related merchandise, accessories, clothes, friends, and relatives of Barbie. Writing for Journal of Popular Culture in 1977, Don Richard Cox noted that Barbie has a significant impact on social values by conveying characteristics of female independence and with her multitude of accessories, an idealized upscale lifestyle that can be shared with affluent friends. There's a whole lot more here under history, the history of Barbie, the development of the toy, launch of the toy, appearances in media, fictional biography, legacy and influence, diversity of Barbie. There was a Barbie Oreo school time fun from 2001. It was controversial due to a negative interpretation of the doll's name and the fact that it was kind of a black Barbie, but then maybe she's not a black Barbie. Maybe she's mulatto. And that's why you call her Oreo, possibly role model Barbies, collecting of Barbies, parodies and lawsuits, competition from Bratz dolls, effects on body image, Barbie syndrome. There's quite a lot to read here. And a lot of it has to do with, do we agree with, do we approve of the image of Barbie being in young girls' minds as they play with Barbie and they start comparing themselves to Barbie. Is this a good thing? Is this a good effect on young ladies and therefore on a future generation of women? Now, over the course of 60 years, three generations at least of women, if they've grown up playing with Barbies or seeing their friends play with Barbies or just seeing Barbie 
as the girl's toy, what has that done to them? How is that shaping and molding what it is they want to be when they grow up? Do they want to look like Barbie? Increasingly, the consensus is that's not healthy. That could be very dangerous. That could lead to eating disorders and negative self-image and depression and anxiety. Do they want to live like Barbie? Do they want to have all the careers available to them that Barbie has? Do they want to dress like Barbie? Well, if so, that's the sell for the feminists. And on the other hand, if they want to look like Barbie, if they think Barbie is the ideal of female beauty, the feminists are upset about that. And so what did the feminists do? They made a movie. And the movie is the Barbie movie. It came out last year. You probably saw quite a lot about it. It came out right around the same time as Oppenheimer. And that's ironic because both are very American influences on the world. Barbie is an American company. It's an American brand. It expresses American values. And it was so popular because Americans recognized it as familiar to how they saw themselves and how they wanted the next generation of young ladies to see themselves coming out in the 60s. Barbie being so empowered and independent and fashionable and good-looking represented how Americans wanted either themselves, if they were women, to be, or how they wanted their women to be if they were the men, hoping that women would also similarly pick up on these attitudes and embody them. The feminists may have gotten what they wanted, and they're not happy. They'll say, that's not what we wanted, that's not what we were going for, but then, as the movie illustrates, do they even know what they want? Did they know what they wanted? Did they know what they were getting themselves into with feminism? Or was it something of a bait and switch? They thought they wanted this, 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 this. But as Weird Barbie says in the movie, you're either brainwashed or you're ugly and weird. And so maybe a whole lot of feminism has made women both, both brainwashed by feminism. You've had plenty of time, feminists, plenty, plenty, plenty of time. But perhaps it's you feminists who have brainwashed so many women. And perhaps also that's led to quite a lot of women being ugly and weird. And instead of being healthy, which is supposed to be the goal, you've defined health as actually just embracing and revolving your identity around having been passed over for love and affection and credit or not being compensated the same as men, supposedly, allegedly. Instead of being healthy, you've embraced comparing yourself to other women and wanting to be better than they are and you've convinced yourself that when it comes to comparing women to men, it's a win-lose instead of a win-win. And then you act surprised and you act like it's just the patriarchy imposing it on you when you apply that same lens to your comparison of yourself to other women. How is it that you're supposed to see it as win-lose when it's men versus women? And when you get to comparing women to other women, yourself to other women, other women to one another... It's the fault of men that you're still stuck in this envy and covetousness and resentment and jealousy. Interestingly, it's the older women who are no longer quite as pretty who are the most critical of 
the body image that Barbie is normalizing. It's not so many of the younger women you typically hear complaining about it. Although the Barbie movie makes a tween into the most enlightened, the most articulate spokesperson in the real world for feminist ideology. She's just a mouthpiece for feminist thinking and she hates Barbie and her friends know that she's going to destroy Barbie when Barbie comes very friendly, very cheerful, trying to introduce herself because she thinks this is the girl who's been playing with her and this is the girl who may be troubled in the real world who's introduced all these irrepressible thoughts of death and cellulite into Barbie world for Barbie, played by Margot Robbie. But it's the mom who works for Mattel who's actually been playing with Barbie and remembering what it was to play with Barbie and sketching very unhealthy mentally and emotionally versions of Barbie. And that's been infecting Barbie land, Barbie world. And it's the daughter who says, for generations, you've been infecting the minds of girls and women with unrealistic body image. Every young girl, every woman hates herself if she doesn't look like you and you should feel bad because you are bad. Well, now wait a second though. Okay, let's just wait a second. If the image that we had in our minds of who Barbie was had been a little plastic doll, never mind whether the proportions are realistic to how a woman is proportioned without extensive dieting and surgery alterations. Margot Robbie now is every other picture that comes up, if not most of the pictures that come up, if you do a search on Google for Barbie. So Bar... Barbie, you know, obviously is several characters in the Barbie movie. You look up the cast and crew listing on IMDb, which we'll get into in just a moment. And so-and-so played Barbie and so-and-so played Barbie and so-and-so played Barbie and so-and-so played Barbie because Barbie had a lot of faces down through the years, looks different because it's a brand. It's not necessarily just a name, but then it's kind of both. But Margot Robbie is coming up as Barbie. And that is to say that Margot Robbie, and they are aware of this and they know this, and even the narrator steps in at one point in the film to say, this is a particularly hard sell, you know, to try and have Margot Robbie say that she feels ugly and weird. You're just going to have to go with it because of course Margot Robbie is not ugly or weird. She's beautiful. But then that is to say that If girls and women start comparing themselves to Margot Robbie and saying, well, that's an unrealistic body image, that's an unrealistic example of female beauty and I don't match up and I hate myself, does it suddenly become Margot Robbie being beautiful that's a problem? Is the problem that the doll was not designed to be precisely realistic? You know, by the way, real women aren't made of plastic either. So there's that. You know, of course, it's it's a doll. It's not supposed to be 100% anatomically correct. That's what people are for. People are supposed to be anatomically correct. But if it's a problem only because women have negative self-image, they resent themselves, they hate themselves, they compare themselves against someone or something that is said to be the standard and they don't match up, where does that leave us when you start talking about real women 
comparing themselves to real women who actually really do look like that. What does that do for the pretty people, the beautiful people, the handsome people, the people who are actually exemplary, the ones who win beauty pageants or sports championships or spelling bees or science fairs or fill in the blank. If the real issue here is just that we don't like the way we feel when we compare ourselves with someone who is smarter or funnier or more popular or wealthier or prettier, then you could do away with Barbie as a toy line and just erase it from history. Just destroy all the Barbies, destroy the brand, make a giant bonfire of Barbies and launch that into the sun. And the problem would still be with us because the problem is covetousness. It's envy. It's discontentedness. Who did God make me to be? What's so fascinating to me is one of the title songs from the album for Barbie explores this question. The title of the song is, What Was I Made For? In fact, Billie Eilish sings that, speaking of mental and emotional problems and embracing those just to make money. Her whole music career, it seems to me, is predicated on her not being well. And because she's selling lots of records, she's trapped in a very perverse, unhealthy cycle of the more she leans into being unhealthy, the more records she's going to sell. If she ever got better, if she ever got healthy, would she just not sell records anymore? Ooh, where does that go? I'm going to play for you, cut one here, of just a little bit, just a little portion of Billie Eilish's song from the album for the Barbie movie. What was I made for? Because I think the lyrics are significant and even just the title is significant. What is really the issue? What's really the malfunction here? Here's cut one. Take a listen. And that's where we'll stop. <clears throat> what was I made for? Hmm? I don't know how to feel, but I want to try. Now, what does this mean? It, what does it mean to say, I don't know how to feel? Turns out I'm not real. Just something you paid for. What was I made for? If you really want to know, you were not made to be a toy. You were created in the image of Almighty God. Male and female, he created them. 
And he put them in the garden and he blessed the man and the woman, the husband and wife. And he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, what's so fascinating, and I don't even know where to start with this, the one type of woman it is acceptable to mock and marginalize and never apologize to or for having mocked in the Barbie movie is pregnant Barbie, Midge. She gets no love. Comments are made throughout the film about how, you gross. I thought we discontinued her. All the while, you definitely, and we'll talk about this more in a minute as well, because we're all over the place here. You can have a transgender Barbie and she gets included. You get weird Barbie having a position in the president's cabinet at the end of the film. Spoiler alert. Sorry. She wants sanitation. Ironic. But pregnant Barbie. Ew. Gross. Midge, I guess, is actually her name. But that's not cool. That's not okay. No children. There are no children at all, except for the tween from the real world. But there are no children in Barbie land. It's all Barbies and Kens with one Alan, one Midge, and then the real people who break in. You know, the corporate types. Because in the real world, the whole executive board of Mattel is men. Except it's not, by the way. That's not realistic. And Will Ferrell is not actually the president and CEO. But of course you knew that. But it's not a realistic film. For asking the question, what was I made for? They could have been more honest about where we're really at instead of presenting their talking points in visual form, which don't accord with where we're at. What was I made for? Well, God said, I will make a help meet suitable for him. And you don't like that. You rejected that or the inventor of Barbie and the marketers of Barbie and the people who really embraced Barbie as a brand for girls didn't like that because it ran just contrary, just counter the sexual revolution, which was feminist. It was feminism that gave us the sexual revolution. You would rather come to terms with weird Barbie and transgender Barbie than come to terms with pregnant Barbie or Midge. And I'm not suggesting, not for a moment, that the whole purpose of woman was to have children, but the purpose of the woman was to be created in the image of Almighty God. Male and female, he created them. He made them in his image after his likeness to reflect his goodness on the earth, to fill up the earth and subdue the earth together. The man to provide for and protect the woman, to lead her, to love her, to lay his life down for her. The woman to help the man to achieve dominion over the earth. And that too, it's a package deal. You reject that man is made in God's image. You reject that God has any authority over the creation. You are also going to reject that man has any authority over the creation. You're definitely going to reject that man has any authority over his wife and his children and his household. Again, I repeat myself, but that's feminism 101. To look at all of that and to twist it and to turn it and to invert it and to say, let's accuse man of having created God in man's image. And let's accuse man of not providing and protecting, but rather oppressing and exploiting and abusing. And in the worst cases, yes, that's exactly what men do. And it's sinful and it's wicked. And the Bible tells me so. But it's not God's fault. And you don't have even a proper definition of oppression because you've gotten 
so much, if not everything, that you wanted and you're still not happy. And yet, when you ask the question, what was I made for, are you listening? Is this an honest question or are you giving away what this is really about? I don't know how to feel, but I want to try. It seems like there's quite a lot of feeling and maybe the balance is not found in more and more feeling and just following your feelings. Maybe the balance is found with truth, the truth that's been suppressed. Maybe we've had quite a lot of feeling and the feelings are not a reliable guide and the feelings need to be informed by truth, the truth about God, the truth about man created in the image of God, the truth about the cosmos as created by God, the truth about man put in the context of God's created order to reflect his image and his glory, man being the glory of God and woman being the glory of man. Reading on down through some more of the lyrics to Billie Eilish's song here. I don't know how to feel, but someday I might. Someday I might. Mm, hmm, ha, ah, mm, hmm, hmm. When did it end? All the enjoyment. I'm sad again. Don't tell my boyfriend. It's not what he's made for. What was I made for? Well, but wait a second, though. You're preferring the atomized individual, and you're just sure that more feeling is the answer. Or feeling right maybe is the answer, but then it needs to be found within. I need to look within to find out how I should feel. But then the more you look within, the more you're just looking at the feelings that are bothering you. And how does that not just spiral down and down and down and down? And what if none of us were made to be all about ourselves? None of us were made to be the center of our own universe. What if we were made for a relationship and community? What if I was made for fellowship with God and fellowship with my wife and my children and my neighbors and the people I go to church with, the people I work with, my extended family, my friends? What if I was made for a relationship And actually, it's not a bug, but it's a feature that my relationship with God and my fellow man is what defines me. It's how I express my purpose. And I was made for the purpose of glorifying God, enjoying God forever, loving him, fearing him, keeping his commands, but enjoying him forever as I obey the first and greatest commandment and the second, which is like it, which are what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Don't tell my boyfriend it's not what he's made for, what was I made for. Well, but wait a second. Wait a second. This whole idea of your boyfriend needs to be called into question. Barbie and Ken apparently have a fear of commitment. 60 years they've been dating. That's a long-term engagement. When are they going to get married? Why is there no commitment there? It's selfish. It claims to be about self-actualization and reaching our full potential, but it's just sure that our full potential has to be a rejection of God having given us a purpose, God having created us, having authority over us, giving us a purpose, giving us specific instructions on how to live out our purpose in relation to him, in relation to one another, in our context. Finite though we may be, that's not a bug, it's a feature. Don't tell my boyfriend. Well, why not tell your boyfriend? What are you so afraid of Or maybe your reason's not so good and you don't want to admit your reasons because you still want to have him thinking that this relationship is predicated on you being as invested in his well-being as you are in your own well-being. It's not what he's made for. Well, but wait a second. Why are these things so totally distinct and separate and atomized from one another in your mind? What 
he's made for and what you're made for. I'm not saying they're the exact same answer or that the answer to both questions is the exact same, but what if they are interlocking? If you only want what of that makes you feel good, at a certain point, you're going to realize you've just been using everybody around you. And then if all you care about is the fact that they were using you too, you're a hypocrite. You talk about plastic people and being fake and unrealistic body image. That's an unrealistic emotional state, an unrealistic relational state. It's unsustainable. You were just using everybody to self-actualize and to feel the way you wanted to feel. And then you complain. If it turns out that some of them were doing the same thing right back to you, that's not loving your neighbor as yourself on the front end or the back end. When you find out they were using you right back and you act indignant like it's somehow the end of the world that they were using you right back when you were using them, you're not loving them as you love yourself and you're not removing the plank from your own eye to help your brother with the speck in his. But then how could you say you weren't just using them when that's a major premise of the film? And actually, it's one of the highlights. It's one of the few parts of the film that I think they got right. The moment where Barbie apologizes to Ken for telling him that every night is girls' night. Why is that a problem? Because it's very self-serving. She was only caring about herself. It just so happens she's a girl, so every night is girls' night. She wasn't thinking about him at all. She didn't care about how that affected him at all. There's a question at one point, where do the Kens live? And Barbie stops and she realizes, I, you know what? I don't know. Well, how is that, right? You come back from the real world and you find out that Ken has used the patriarchy to take over Barbie land. And he and the other Kens have overhauled your dream houses and made them into Mojo Dojo Casa houses, which is super fun to say. You got to admit, that is that was a funny part. It was a really funny part. And they've all got big screen TVs playing slow motion, artsy reels of a white horse running on a black beach in the night or something because horses are just man extenders. Horses are the patriarchy. <laughs> Where do the Kens live? I don't know. Interesting. So you have your dream house, which is to say that your dreams are all important. And if Ken is just beach, he just lives on the beach. He's literally homeless and he gets to come along when he's clean and fun and polite and does exactly what you want and dresses just to match you. Well, then you have room for him in your life. But then maybe this isn't the patriarchy. Maybe you're just projecting onto what you call the patriarchy, all of your own selfishness, your self-absorption, your viciousness, your exploitation of men, your resentment of men. And you're expecting that that's how you're going to be treated in return. And if it turns out that sometimes occasionally you get a taste of your own medicine, that's when you realize, oh, this doesn't feel so good. I'm sorry I made you feel this way. Well, anyway, Kay, thanks. Bye. Yeah. Where does Ken live now? I'm just Ken is the title track. It's the song I played for the transition from the scripture reading to thoughts on the reading. I'm just Ken is supposed to be sufficient when he realizes Ken is me. I am Ken. And he just keeps saying it like a mantra because Ken is just supposed to be content with being Ken. And supposedly Barbie is supposed to just be content with being Barbie, but then also very clearly by the end of the film, she's not content with being just Barbie. The resolution of the drama and the conflict, the temporary tragedy, according to the makers of the film, is she gets everything back. 
She gets it all back. They get Barbie land back. They get their constitution back where only women are in charge. Only women get to be president or Supreme Court justices. You know, just like men in the real world are the only ones who get to be president or Supreme Court justices. Never mind that we have a Supreme Court that has nine people on it in the United States. And four of those nine people are women. And three of those four women are pretty liberal, if I'm not mistaken. The fourth one, a conservative Roman Catholic mom of seven just voted with the liberals this past week to say that the Biden administration can cut down razor wire that the state of Texas put up on the border with Mexico. So maybe she is, maybe she isn't the conservative after all, but she was appointed by President Trump, Amy Coney Barrett. But the point is, it's a big punchline and also completely lacking in self-awareness as to the real world at the end of the film, when they have this resolution and Ken is being told, you just need to be content with being Ken. Ken is enough. You are enough. <laughs> Very funny. But also, if that's how you think the real world works, you've not been paying attention. Maybe you should get outside of your feelings for a moment and look around because feminists have been given more and more and more of what they want for the last century. And they're arguably more miserable than ever So maybe it's not that you haven't had enough of what you want. Maybe it's what you've been wanting has not actually been so good for you. And maybe you being given what you've wanted or what you thought you wanted to this point actually was the very exploitation of you. It was a pretext for the very exploitation of you. You're saying it's so problematic. It was a whole lot of men who were the worst sort of men who wanted more and more power. And they knew that strong, healthy marriages, strong, intact, healthy families, extended families, et cetera, were the biggest check socially and culturally and economically on their just doing and saying and having and taking whatever they want, including other men's wives. You can just imagine this poor Ken going from having his Mojo Dojo Casa House and a Ford Bronco to having nothing again and being told you need to be content with being enough. And the corporate guy, the CEO, almost saying no. He was on the way to saying, no, that's a terrible idea to make just a average woman Barbie. Oh, but wait, sir, that's going to make a ton of money. Oh, well, then in that case, it's a great idea. Because why, right? Because that's how the real world works after a fashion that you have the people who make a lot of money making the decision to back these sorts of things, back feminism based on whether they profit more than anybody. Ironically, the resolution for Barbie is She goes to a gynecologist's office for her appointment in the real world. Ken, whoever, whatever, don't care. Not my problem. I got to go find myself at the gynecologist. But don't you dare comment on my body and boil me down to just being a physical body. Don't ogle me. Don't smack me on the butt because I'm definitely more than just my body. But then the whole predicate is... I need to dress my body. I need a body that looks really great. I need to be the most fashionable so that I'm accentuating how beautiful I am. And then at the end of the movie, she's going to a gynecologist and okay, sure. She's maybe making sure that she's healthy. She's looking after herself. She's being responsible. She's showing that she's an empowered woman. Now she has, if you'll pardon me for going there, but they go there in the film. Now she has a vagina. 
So now she's a real woman. But never mind, you've got a transgendered Barbie who definitely didn't have that. And you think that Barbie, transgender Barbie, deserves more respect, more consideration, more room. Make room for transgender Barbie more so than Midge. How is it that Midge, being pregnant, by the way, is somehow demeaning? Oh, that's all she is? It's just a body to get pregnant, to carry another human being? Yeah, none of you would be here, by the way, if your mothers had not gotten pregnant, carried you to term, given birth to you, raised you, you ingrates. But then that strongly, strongly suggests that it all has to be on Barbie's terms. That's the feminist ideal is I just get what I want all the time, always. And if it turns out that I accidentally kind of made a sort of small mistake in treating a man who was in love with me like trash, you know, when he was a simp, when he fawned over me all the time, he was obnoxious. But then when he asserted himself and actually tried to have something of his own, then he was the villain. If that's the feminist ideal, well, then the feminist vision is women ultimately being all alone, surrounded by their accessories and their fashion choices, living in their dream house, girls' night every night. That's the dream of the feminists. But then that's also going to be very lonely. And if it turns out that you're still stuck with the question of what was I made for, you'll make a movie that justifies it all and acts like, oh, we still have so much work to do. We have so far to go. It's a tragedy, actually. Arguably, Barbie's condition at the end of the film is worse because the question has been posed and the wrong answer will lead to disastrous results and loneliness. Disenchantment is, according to the feminists, the only way we're going to liberate women from the oppression of the patriarchy. But then what if actually this is one big lie and you're still stuck with the question of what was I made for it? Well, that implies someone made you. Who made you? If the ideal is being this atomized individual, well, then that sounds like a recipe for loneliness. And if you're completely lonely and miserable and you're stuck there, then isn't that just death? Irrepressible thoughts of death, Barbie. But then doesn't that prove just a feminine expression of those who hate me love death? Those who hate God love death. You rejected the truth about God. You suppressed the truth about God. And in turn, the truth about yourself became incomprehensible. You were enjoying yourself for a time, being liberated. And then at a certain point, the cellulite does show up. And you do have wrinkles and you do have sags. And maybe you're not fashionable anymore. And maybe your bosses are shooting down your ideas left and right. And that's discouraging. And your husband who just sits around all day, I guess he's a stay-at-home dad who has nothing better to do than play around on Duolingo while you go to work in the real world. And he still can't even do that right by the end of the film. He spent the whole film trying to learn Spanish and he couldn't even do that right. He had to be helped along by his wife. Oh yeah, feminine empowerment, female empowerment, women's power. At what cost? And are you really so powerful? Are you more powerful? Or is this actually really just about measuring yourself against everybody around you? And then the only escape is just to be completely alone. Except you'll still have your thoughts and your memories to keep you company and that'll bother you. And the only way you satisfy or comfort yourself is to pass it on to the next generation. Really? Infect their minds and say, they're there. I also know how upset you are. I too care very much about the feelings of frustration and confusion. Is this what we were fighting for? Is this what we were working for? Was this what we wanted? Really? 
Maybe it's not men oppressing women. Maybe it's women oppressing themselves. Maybe it's their own sinful nature oppressing them. Just like men's sinful nature can oppress men and does, apart from Christ, make them slaves to sin and death, here's your equal opportunity. Women's sinful nature oppresses them and they're slaves to it. And by extension, they become slaves to sin and death. And they will die there if they're too stubborn and too proud to admit that they don't have the answers. And the people who told them that this is what life is all about might just not have had the answers either and might have lied to them. and might have just been manipulating them to use them, to exploit them, to get something from them. Whether material satisfaction, enjoyment in a general sense, or emotional satisfaction, affirmation of their own selfishness. Moving on to the IMDb page for Barbie. Again, it was released last year with a PG-13 rating. My wife and my kids were like, wow, really? Just PG-13? Some of the jokes and some of the humor and comments, this did not feel like a PG-13 film. The marketing, it was marketed towards not just women who grew up playing with Barbies and are feminists, but also teens, tweens, young girls. How many moms took their young daughters to see the Barbie film and were very disappointed because they're not feminists and they haven't recognized that Barbie actually was a toy that communicated quite a lot of feminist propaganda by emphasizing career Barbie over get married and have some kids Barbie. Be a modern, empowered, liberated woman who's oh so fashionable and you earn your own money. And Ken comes around when you want some masculine company, but he's an accessory. It got a PG-13 rating because I think today we don't recognize how there is a distinction. There's a difference between what's appropriate for children and teens and what's appropriate for adults. I watched this with my whole family and you might say, oh, I don't know if you should have done that. I don't think that's a good idea. But here's my thinking. Most people who go to see a film, any film, they're not talking through the themes of the film, what's being communicated worldview-wise. Is that true? Is that good? How do we know? Do we agree with this? Was that good? And so it's very effective propaganda when you don't realize that it's propaganda, that it's somebody else propagating their ideas, their vision. In the case of my house, my family, we will, within reason, watch films that have content, themes, language, worldview, ideas, messages that I very strongly disagree with. Because guess what? Whether I'm talking through those with my children or not, they're going to have to know what to do with those sooner or later, probably sooner than most parents would expect, especially most conservative Christian parents, homeschooling parents. I want to be an active agent in them, thinking rightly about especially one of the most popular films of last year, because it was like the Barbie toy, popular because people are buying. It's not enough to sell. When people are buying and watching and listening and leaning in and fawning over something, well, that communicates something about not just the property itself, but people and what they value. And you should know the culture that you are going to have to reckon with, the culture that's affecting you and trying to influence you and trying to shape and mold you to conform to its values. The Barbie movie 
is in the number 15 spot. It's the 15th most popular film or title on IMDb right now. It's got a 6.9 out of 10 stars rating with 472,000 ratings. I gave it five. Maybe that was too generous. That was probably too generous. But from a visual standpoint, from a quality of cinematography standpoint, it was well-constructed. It looked like a Barbie movie should look, by and large, in my view. Not having played with Barbies, but certainly being familiar with the franchise from when I had to walk by the Barbie aisle to get to the Lego section of the toy store. It looked like a Barbie movie should, in my view. Margot Robbie looked like Barbie. It was not difficult to imagine that, okay, if Barbie was a real woman, this is what Barbie would look like. So the casting, at least as far as that goes, was solid. I think Ryan Gosling was just fine as just Ken. My wife objected a little bit and said, I don't think he made a very good Ken. When I think Ken, from when I played with Barbies, my wife said, I think somebody a bit more manly, but Ryan Gosling, in my view, in my opinion, was just fine as just Ken. The summary at IMDb reads as follows. Barbie and Ken are having the time of their lives in the colorful and seemingly perfect world of Barbie land. However, when they get a chance to go to the real world, they soon discover the joys and perils of living among humans. The director of this film was Greta Gerwig. The writers were Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. I think I'm saying that name right. Oh, by the way, in case you didn't know, Noah Baumbach is married to Greta Gerwig, their husband and wife. And yes, they have different last names because I guess that's just what you do when you're a feminist. You hold on to your last name. Never mind that you got it from your father in all probability who got it from his father, who got it from his father, going back generations and generations and generations, probably hundreds of years, you're not going to comply with the patriarchy. You're going to hold on to your maiden name, or so it seems. Way to go. Way to stick it to the patriarchy. Metascore, uh, the critics thought this film was pretty great. Uh, the Metascore is 80 for the Barbie movie. Cast included, as I mentioned, Margot Robbie, Ryan Gosling, but also Issa Rae, Kate McKinnon played Weird Barbie, Alexandra Shipp, Emma Mackey, Hari Neff, and oh, by the way, Hari Neff is transgendered. More about Hari Neff a little later, but Sharon Rooney also played Barbie, Anna Cruz Kanye played Barbie, Ridu Arya played Barbie, Dua Lipa played Barbie, Nicola Coughlin played Barbie. Emerald Fennel played Midge. I thought we discontinued her. Hmm. You, gross. Simu Liu played Ken. Kingsley Ben Adir played Ken. Nikuti Gatwa played Ken. Scott Evans played Ken. John Cena played Ken, even. Only appearing when the patriarchy had taken over. Barbie Land, of course, played a merman. Barbie, King of the Sea or something. But this film was nominated for eight Oscars. It had 122 wins, 371 nominations in total. It got quite a lot of attention. Oppenheimer and Barbie came out right around the same time. And somehow Barbenheimer was 
a meme. I don't understand that still, except that I guess that's where we're at. You know, we're deconstructing everything about the American legacy so as to do better in the future or something. We've got to rethink our contribution to the modern world, our leadership of the free world. Mea culpa, mea culpa is essentially what Barbie and Oppenheimer represent. Oppenheimer, I've heard, is a better film. It's got a higher rating in any event, 8.4 out of 10, compared with 6.9 out of 10. But did you know? Barbie is 23% larger than everything in Barbie land to mimic the awkward disproportionate scale that real Barbies and Barbie activity sets are produced in. This is why Barbie sometimes appears too large for things like her car or why ceilings seem to be too low in the dream houses. Gloria drives a Chevrolet Blazer SSEV, yet during the car chase scene, her electric vehicle makes conventional gas engine acceleration noises. So that was kind of a goof. That was hardly the biggest goof, like say, for instance, implying that the U.S. Supreme Court is all men in the real world, or that the board of directors, the executive board of Mattel is all men. Here's a quote from Ken. To be honest, when I found out the patriarchy wasn't just about horses, I lost interest. It's funny. It's funny. All the parts about the patriarchy with regards to Ken thinking the patriarchy was really, really great. All of those parts were really funny. The featured review, there are 1,600 on IMDb, but the featured one, giving it 8 out of 10, has... 845 thumbs up for being helpful, 1,100 thumbs down for being unhelpful. The title of the featured review is Barbie is a weirdly fun movie, 8.5 out of 10. While I'm not sure at first, the movie kept getting even more fun, entertaining, and definitely better. Also surprisingly, deal with a legit serious stuff. Barbie is a weirdly fun movie that fills with this very interesting concept. Definitely the first time that's ever done, Greta Gerwig has created this whole new style of filmmaking specifically for Barbie. From the intentionally weird yet creative editing, some awkward and cringe scene. I found the comedy so funny instead of cringe. Barbie is one of the most original movie of the year and also one of the most original movie I've seen in a while. Was this written by AI? Maybe have AI not also do the editing. Just a thought. The budget for the Barbie movie uh, is estimated to have been $100 million. Opening weekend in the US and Canada, July 23rd. Of 2023, it made $162 million. Gross worldwide, $1.445 billion. Runtime, one hour and 54 minutes. This movie made a lot of money. A lot, a lot of money. And it got a lot of attention, and it's still getting attention right here, yours truly, talking about it. But this film is filed under on IMDb, the International Movie Database. It's filed under Adventure, Comedy, and Fantasy. I didn't watch this like it was a comedy, even though there were some funny parts. I watched this like, this is a tragedy. This is so sad. I'm not just saying it's so sad that this is out there, that somebody made this film. No, I mean, it's tragic because the situation for Barbie and for Ken at the end of the film is worse than it was at the beginning. Whether they know that or not, if they're content with it, maybe that's the saddest part of all. They embrace the disenchantment. They embrace the liquidity and they embrace the desecration of man. The Barbie film is categorized by the mainstay of those who oversee the modern project as a comedy because 
that's all good. That's all what it should be as far as they're concerned. But if they're wrong, and if the modern project actually is an affront to God Almighty, and if it's anti-human, actually, at the end of the line, then this is a tragedy whether Barbie and Ken realize at the end of the film that it's a tragedy for them, that they've lost quite a lot, that they're worse off than they were at the beginning. It's also a tragedy if you think bigger than just what's on the screen and you think about people actually believing this and seeing the world this way, seeing themselves this way, approaching life this way, more and more people having this idea propagated in their own minds, becoming a guest in their own minds. That's what it means in the modern sense for us to entertain. This is entertainment, but what are we entertaining? We're entertaining the guest of feminist ideology, feminist thinking in the house of our heart and soul and mind. And at a certain point, maybe it just claims squatters' rights, and now it's feminism's house. It's not your house anymore. No, as a matter of fact, you just thought it was your house, just like Ken redecorated Barbie's dream house as the Mojo Dojo Casa house. Oh, that's redundant. You do realize that casa and house are literally the same word just in Spanish and in English, right? Yeah, I don't care because it sounds cool. It's fun to say. Okay, Eh, whatever. You just thought that this was your house, but it's not your house. That's part of what's being expressed by way of this film. And that's tragic for all the same reasons that within the story, it's a tragedy for Barbie and Ken. For those outside of the story who are watching this, who take away from it, that the silver lining needs to be they actually live out these attitudes, embrace and internalize and make it their own culture, their own lifestyle, their own approach to the world. It is also a tragedy for them and arguably a much bigger tragedy because they don't realize that this was not a comedy when compared to the real, real world. Speaking of the real, real world, if I look at just even peek at the biographies for the two writers of the Barbie movie, Greta Gerwig and Noah Bombach. I see Greta was born 1983 in Sacramento, California. Her birth name was Greta Celeste Gerwig, and her height is five foot nine. Noah Baumbach was born September 3rd, 1969, so he is an older man by about 14 years. He was born in Brooklyn, New York City, New York, USA. He was also five foot nine, so they're the same height. They've got that in common. But they don't have a last name in common. Kind of weird. Greta Gerwig is an American actress, playwright, screenwriter, and director. She has collaborated with Noah Baumbach on several films, including Greenberg, Francis Ha, for which she earned a Golden Globe nomination, and Mistress America. Gerwig made her solo directorial debut with the critically acclaimed comedy drama film Lady Bird 2017, which she also wrote and has also had starring roles in the films Damsels in Distress, Jackie, and 20th Century Women. Some quotes from her 
give you more of an idea of her perspective, her flavor as a real person, a real woman. When I was a kid, I used to do my homework in the living room where there was a picture window. I was hoping that someone would walk by and see me looking very studious in my living room. Or how about this one? Some of the independent films that make money have a very specific thing that you can tell audiences they'll feel about it. This will make you feel so happy. This will make you feel something about your family. And anything that's not that, if it's, this will make you feel perhaps uncomfortable about choices you've made in your life, will touch your deep feelings of failure and unworthiness. My father said about it, Frances Ha, by the way, her 2012 film, you know they play that Steve Miller song in the beginning? You think, this is really going to make you feel great. He was, yes, and then, what? So there's a little bit of the flavor of Greta Gerwig, the not just co-writer of Barbie, but also the director of Barbie. And so much also for women in the real world not being in charge, not having control. She was the director. She directed the film. Isn't that something? Seems like something. But what did you do with it? (laughs) That's more of the question. Not just that you were a woman who got to direct the film. What did you do with it? How about the other co-writer, Noah Baumbach? Born in Brooklyn in 1969, Noah Baumbach is the son of two film critics, Georgia Brown and Jonathan Baumbach, also a writer. His studies at Vassar College were the subject of his first film, made as he was 26 years old, Kicking and Screaming, his second major film, made 10 years later, The Squid and the Whale, 2005 was no less autobiographical, but went back further in his personal history, back to the time when his parents separated. Recounting this past trauma and its aftermath earned Noah a selection at the Sundance Film Festival, three Golden Globe nominations, and a Best Screenplay Oscar nomination. From then on, his career was launched, and his output became more regular with Margot at the Wedding, 2007, starring Nicole Kidman, and his wife Jennifer Jason Leigh Greenberg, 2010, filmed in Los Angeles with Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig. Back in New York, where he lives, he was director and co-author with his main actress, Greta Gerwig, of the bittersweet art house success, Francis Ha. Besides directing films, he also co-writes some with Wes Anderson, a good friend of his, and is the author of humorous columns in The New Yorker. Some interesting facts about Noah Baumbach. Currently, as of December 2023, he is married to Greta Gerwig, they are newlyweds, but they have two children. I don't know how they had two children between December of last year and January of this year, but actually I do. Formerly, he was married to Jennifer Jason Leigh from 2005, September of 2005 to September of 2013. They had one child together, but again, they're divorced. But that is to say, he started making films with Greta Gerwig. Interestingly, He filmed Greenberg in 2010 with Ben Stiller and Greta Gerwig. And around about three years later, he divorced his wife. Is that a coincidence? I don't know. Some quotes from Noah Baumbach. I always viewed life as material for a movie. It's good to know. I grew up in the heat of 70s postmodern fiction and post-Goddard films. And there was this idea that what mattered was the theory or meta in art. My film is emotional rather than meta, and that's my rebellion. Okay, well, that's also good to know. That is good to know that your film is emotional rather than meta, 
that also matches very closely Billie Eilish's song, What Was I Made For? All about feelings. How am I supposed to feel? Well, I don't know, but I want to try to know how I'm supposed to feel. What's the loss? Well, I'm not enjoying this anymore. So then life is about enjoyment. It's about feeling good. If I'm not feeling good anymore, well, then something's wrong. Something's broken. I don't need to worry about my significant other. What's bothering them? I need to find out why I'm not enjoying myself anymore. And that's what really matters. Here's another quote. Somebody could easily go through and link everything to different points and not just my family, but people I know, but I don't even really care. For me, the movie is a protection, a completely reinvented film. Great. You really don't care that you write people you know into scripts. The movie is a protection. Protection of what? What are you protecting? Curious. One thing I'll note before we move on, some trademarks for these two writers. Uh, First, the only one for Greta Gerwig is overlapping or parallel dialogue. It's a trademark of hers. Her films feature people talking over each other, you know, like real life, I guess, or something. Some trademarks, more trademarks for Noah Baumbach. Most of his films are at 90 minutes margin. He often works with Greta Gerwig. Recurring theme of dysfunctional families. Yeah, go figure. What a person to write the script for the Barbie movie. Of course you were going to get the portrayal of dysfunction. His films often focus on immature people who are unwilling to act mature. Well, yeah, that sounds accurate. That sounds accurate to the Barbie movie. Uh, Often works with Ben Stiller and Adam Driver. And that sounds like those two as well. Immature people, unwilling to act mature, and that's supposed to be the funny. But sometimes that's not the funny. Sometimes in real life, that's actually the tragedy. And if you're nihilistic, if you actually are just selfish and foolish and wise in your own eyes, maybe you lean into that and you say, oh, that's really funny. That's actually comedy because it (laughs) affirms, it reinforces how I am in my real life when I just don't care about the people around me. I just use them. And then I'm going to make that somehow the redeeming quality of a film that I write about a woman who feels just used and confused and exploited, and she's going to find her way out of it by going to a gynecologist at the end. doesn't have to make sense because you're a nihilist, clearly, because you just care about yourself, because you just care about enjoying the people in your life until you don't enjoy them, and then you move on to other people. I got it. I, I see. Moving on, like I said we would. Let's talk a little bit, just a tiny little bit, about Hari Neff, born October 21st, 1992. Wikipedia says Hari Neff is an American actress, model, and writer. Reserve judgment, though, if you would. Neff's breakthrough role was Gitel in the Amazon original series, Transparent, for which, and I'm just reading what they've written here, for which she was nominated for a Screen Actors Guild Award for outstanding performance by an ensemble in a comedy series in 2016. Quote, she made her runway debut at New York Fashion Week spring 2015, walking for both Hood by Air and Akhaus Lata, and subsequently became the first openly transgender woman signed to IMG Models. Okay. Quote, she became the first openly transgender woman to appear on the cover of a major British magazine. Neff has written on a breadth of topics from fine art and film to sex, gender, and transgender identity. Quote, she lives 
and works in New York City, end quote. Hari Neff was born in Philadelphia into a Jewish family. Quote, her parents are David Neff, an advertising executive, and Robin Klebnik. Her parents divorced. And again, this is just quoting Wikipedia. When, quote, she was two, and, quote, she was raised by her mother in Newton, Massachusetts. You know, it's almost as if they really want to use the pronouns that Hari Neff prefers as often as they possibly can. You get that feeling? You get that sense? Hari Neff is a man dressing up as a woman, insisting on being called a woman, insisting on female pronouns. Hari Neff is not a woman and does not deserve female pronouns. To use female pronouns with regards to Hari Neff would be to imply that Hari Neff is a woman. And Hari Neff is not a woman. Hari Neff is a man dressed up as a woman. And apparently, supposedly, Hari Neff playing a Barbie in the Barbie film. <sighs> that is what is a woman too, apparently. Apparently. And yet, ironically, the payoff for Barbie emotionally, mentally, socially, at the end of the Barbie film, spoiler alert, is that she shows up at the gynecologist. She's there to see her gynecologist in the real world. Well, but wait a second. A gynecologist is for a woman who has a vagina. So if the penultimate here is that Barbie has a gynecologist, that is to say at the end of the film, Barbie has a vagina, which is to say that Barbie is a woman, but then I refer you to Matt Walsh's excellent documentary, What is a Woman? How do you know what a woman is? The writers of the Barbie film don't know even what a woman is, much less how to answer the question of Billie Eilish's song, What Was I Made For? You could start with who made you and then progress to how did he make you and why did he make you will come with the text. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He made man. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so he did. Male and female, he created them. But what's so remarkable is Hari Neff is not Weird Barbie. Weird Barbie got played with too hard. And so we're going to say that's what happens to women when they get played with too hard is they get messed up. They get weird and ugly. But then as they say in the movie, you're either brainwashed or you're weird and ugly. So then I guess everybody who's not weird and everybody who's not ugly is brainwashed. So then if you're beautiful and you're healthy and you're normal, which supposedly that's what they're going for, that's what the pursuit should be arriving at unless you don't believe that there is even such thing as being healthy and beautiful, then you must be brainwashed, in which case we need to deprogram you. We need to disenchant you. We need to show you how everything is liquid, even gender is liquid and fluid. And a man can be a woman, a woman can be a man. It's whatever. Whatever you feel. Oh, you feel awful? Well, by the same token that I'm going to say, you don't have to worry about your boyfriend as you're figuring that out. I'm actually giving myself license to not really worry about how you're doing, how you're going to figure this out. I'm giving myself license once you start getting weird and uncomfortable to just do my own thing and go find somebody else. Just like Noah Baumbach found somebody else. He was married, got a divorce. Had two kids with Greta Gerwig, made several films, including this one, which is inspired by his own philosophy. Of course it is. It's propagating his own view of the world, his own approach to life. And casting Hari Neff as a Barbie is just of a piece with 
where we're at today. You're supposed to believe all of these things can be true at the same time, never mind that their mutual exclusivity is part of the abuse. This is part of the expression of rebellion against God and hatred for your fellow men, that you would say you must affirm that we know Barbie is a real woman now because she has a vagina and can <laughs> therefore go, needs to go to a gynecologist, but we also insist that you refer to Hari Neff as she, her, and definitely a woman, despite being transgender, which is to say a man dressing up as a woman. See how that works? No, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's just because you're brainwashed, right? That doesn't make sense. You're not happy about that. It makes you uncomfortable. You feel like that's not particularly healthy for us to be telling other people that. Well, we'll just see. We'll just see about that. We'll just say that that's the patriarchy. Ah, Maybe it's not the patriarchy. Maybe it's reality that you have a problem with because you just care about feeling good. You just care about pleasing yourself and you like to surround yourself with people who also affirm that and you affirm them and just pleasing themselves. And that's the game. Next up though, I want to play cut to a second bit of audio, another little selection from the soundtrack for the Barbie movie. This one, a track from Dua Lipa, who was one of the Barbies. She played one of the Barbies. That's what the casting on IMDb says. I'm going to play just a small bit of this track titled Dance the Night, and then I have some questions. Here it is. Cut two. Take a listen. So this is Dua Lipa. She's featured in the cast uh, on IMDb as also Barbie. And this is one of the contradictions that you're expected, in fact, demanded to accept and embrace, not comment on, not challenge, not disagree with, that has brought us to the moment that we're in right now, since the 60s at least, but really going back to, say, for instance, the founder of Planned Parenthood also helped to popularize this way of thinking. Margaret Sanger helped to really get the idea out there that led to the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Drug culture as well going along with that. The breakdown of the nuclear family in the modern era. You're supposed to accept another contradiction. On the one hand, a woman is a woman because she has a vagina and she doesn't have male parts. But it's also demanded that you affirm that Somebody who has man parts, who is born male, is a woman if they insist on it. And don't you dare say they're in fact a man dressed up as a woman. No, 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 no. 
Another contradiction is you're not supposed to comment on the sexiness of women. You're not supposed to objectify them, right? You're not supposed to talk about how women dress if they dress in a very sexy way. You're not supposed to make advances. Say, for instance, when Barbie comes into the real world with Ken to try and find herself by finding the girl who's playing with her, who's filling her with thoughts of death, irrepressible thoughts of death, causing cellulite to show up on her body. When Barbie and Ken first arrive in the real world on their rollerblades, Barbie is getting glared at, leered at, ogled by all of the men on Venice Beach. And then as she approaches a construction site where she's expecting to find women because women do all the constructing in Barbie land, she gets a bunch of very aggressive sexual advances and lewd comments from the men. And then as they leave, as they are going to go and find somebody who's actually helpful from there, Barbie has a man come up behind her and slap her on the backside. And she turns around and she punches that guy and then she gets arrested by the police because apparently you're not allowed to punch somebody for slapping you on the butt in the real world. I think that's dumb. I think you should be allowed to punch somebody. Hey, you hit me, I get to hit you. That's how it works. You slap me on the butt, I am going to reserve the right to punch you in the face. Just so you know. Not to say I'll necessarily exercise that right, but just, you know, heads up. I think it's fair, especially for somebody who's doing it in a very unwelcome way. But that's not okay, right? It's not okay for men to talk about women's bodies in a way that is lewd or expresses open sexual interest. But, <laughs> but uh, let's do consider Dua Lipa's lyrics here, which if I am not mistaken, are the party at Barbie's dream house dance sequence right before Barbie goes to see Weird Barbie and sets out for the real world with Ken. That dance sequence, this song is playing, and let's just read the lyrics without the breathy, sexy Dua Lipa voice, shall we? Baby, you can find me under the lights. Well, wait a second. Stop right there. The very first word, the very first word, baby, baby. Whoa, I thought we were dealing with right proper feminists here. Is this like in gangster rap when gangsters are using the N-word to describe themselves and one another left and right? But if a white person ever used the N-word even once in passing, even just quoting rap lyrics, that that would be the end of their career. It's just kind of like that where if a man ever refers to a woman as baby, that's the end of him. But women can refer to men as baby. They can refer to one another as baby. Is it kind of like that? I think it's kind of like that. I think it's pretty much the first word right out the gate of the song, baby. Who's baby? Who's <laughs> a literal baby? Nope. Nope. Midge is gross. She gets to dance over there by herself because Alan's a tool. Sorry, but he is. And nobody likes Midge because, ew, gross. Pregnancy? Nasty. I thought you were trying to be comfortable with your body. You're not comfortable with the fact that your body can grow people? Anyway, baby. Not a literal baby. Not an actual baby. First word of the lyrics of the song that they're all dancing to, and not for the last time, baby clearly is a reference to a man. As a matter of fact, baby is a reference to, very clearly, 
a man, Dua wants to be interested in her and wants to take notice of her and wants to find her attractive and be attracted to her and appreciate some of the following facts about her. Baby, you can find me under the lights. Well, why would I want to find you under the lights? I'm trying to give you space. I'm trying to let you find yourself. Isn't that what I'm supposed to do? But you want me to find you? Okay. Well, anyway, diamonds under my eyes. Well, why would you put diamonds under your eyes? Why? Why would you do that? Because you want me to look at your eyes. I see. Okay. Diamonds under your eyes. Look into my eyes. This is very important. We're going to have this intimate moment. Turn the rhythm up. Don't you want to just come along for the ride? Oh, my outfit so tight. You can see my heartbeat tonight. I can take the heat. Baby, best believe that's the moment I shine. Because every romance shakes and it bends. Don't give a damn when the night's here. I don't do tears. Baby, no chance. I could dance. I could dance. I could dance. Watch me dance. Dance the night away. This is one of the contradictions of modern feminism, so-called where women say they want one thing and then they say they want the opposite thing. And what do they really want? If they don't know, how is anybody else supposed to know? It doesn't have to make sense, but then that's part of the abusive quality of it. That's part of the expression of contempt for others that's common to modern feminism. I'm going to dress in the most deliberately provocative, sexualized way. I'm going to highlight and accentuate the physical aspect of my body, so as to be as enticingly feminine as I possibly can be. And then I'm going to sing songs about it. I'm going to dance in such a way as to draw attention. I'm going to tell you to pay attention. And then when my words and my actions and my attire all actually succeed in drawing your attention, if I decide in that moment, as I was singing to the general public, and just happened to get your attention, or I decided I don't want your attention anymore, if I decide at any moment, at any juncture, that I'm tired of you and I'm done with you, I'm going to actually flip the script and I'm going to say, how dare you, you pig? How dare you sexualize me? How dare you objectify me? How dare you? Or, as is equally often the case, one woman will do this, and then other women, because they've just embraced comparing themselves to men and comparing themselves to other women. Other women will get resentful and they'll resent the woman who's doing this. But then because they're supposed to be good feminists and they're supposed to see this now as women's empowerment, because whose idea was that? Uh, Probably the high status males who don't have ethics and moral restraint and good sexual morals and who are not exactly living for Jesus, who enjoy this sort of a thing. You know, you're supposed to view this as feminism too. So don't hate that woman. What do women do? They blame the men. And they say, ah, this must be because all the men are in charge and it's only men on the U.S. Supreme Court. Never mind that it isn't. And it's all men on the board of Mattel. Never mind that it isn't. It's women being jealous of women and upset with women who then decide, you know what? Rather than us hating one another and ourselves, let's hate men. Let's blame men for when we entice them and then decide we're tired of them or that we resent sometimes not measuring up to one another. If curvy Barbie (laughs) doesn't feel like she's getting as much attention as Dua Lipa Barbie saying her outfit is so tight, you can see her heartbeat tonight, which is pretty dadgum tight, just so you know. Well, then I guess both will just agree that the problem is the men. 
And this is why the men shouldn't have Mojo Dato Casa houses. You know, this is why they shouldn't have a seat on the Supreme Court and they shouldn't have a relationship with Barbie on an individual basis. You know, what's fascinating too is Ken, played by Ryan Gosling, only has eyes for one Barbie. You would think his being so interested in it being their house someday, I always dreamed this would be our house. You would think that that would count for something, but nope, nope. And yet, Girls' Night is all about trying to draw the attention of these men. And yeah, they can come and be there for the party, but really, it's women measuring themselves and one another by whether they got the attention and really ultimately had the control over these men in Barbie land. That's the dream. And then we know that this is part of what it means that they had the dream realized on the front end in the first place by how they are going to retrace their steps. When they're going from Barbie land to the real world and they're trying to figure out how to get back, they said, well, just do the things that you did to get to the real world, but in reverse to get back to Barbie land. When they're trying to put things right in Barbie land from the patriarchy having turned everything upside down, what do they do? They trick all of the Kens into sitting on the beach around a bonfire playing guitar, playing the song, I Want to Push You Around. Actually, I think the title of it is Push by Matchbox 20. But they're all singing this song, serenading their respective Barbies. And then the way that the women are going to pit the Kens against each other because they're projecting, right? This is how the Barbies have gotten at odds with each other, according to feminist theory, is the men have pitted the women against one another, gotten them competing. But maybe it's actually really the women, first and foremost, who were wanting to be sexually liberated, who started viewing one another as competition because they weren't in mutually exclusive marital covenants with men anymore. They'd rejected that. They decided that that was oppressive and repressive. The women at a certain point, go from looking adoringly but also entirely disingenuously into the eyes of their kens as kens are playing guitar and singing to them, push, to just getting up and switching kens. And they know that this is going to make the kens very jealous. Why? Because these individual kens were interested in those individual specific Barbies. And they're being rejected. Even if they're being picked up by a different Barbie, it's the women It's the Barbies who are rejecting them and picking somebody else. And never mind that somebody else has picked them now. The Kens are going to fight. Well, maybe this isn't actually just comedy. Maybe this is really how they themselves view the dynamic between women in the real world. And maybe that says quite a lot about what's broken, what's dysfunctional about the male-female dynamic, our anthropology, according to the modern project today. It turns out when you're all about yourself, And the men are all about themselves too, ladies. You all just use each other and then you get all upset when it turns out you were being used right back. And you got played sometimes much more effectively than you yourself played the people around you. At the end of it, maybe it's just you, just you alone, being lonely, sorting out your thoughts and your feelings perpetually, indefinitely, until you die. That sounds rather awful. That sounds tragic. That's why I say the Barbie movie was a tragedy. Before I move on, though, having just listened to a little bit of Dua Lipa's Dance the Night, it's fascinating to me that on Spotify, when you click the track to play it, not just the album cover shows up on the margins with the 
playing of the track, but also a link to Dua Lipa along with how many listens she gets on a monthly basis. It's 73 million, by the way, 73,414,321 monthly listens. I have the option to follow. I'm going to decline. She's a three-time Grammy and six-times Brit award-winning international pop powerhouse. She closed out 2022 as one of the top performers of the year. And the photo of her is her looking perhaps a bit sweaty, licking a mirror, but then that is to say licking an image of herself in the mirror, which is to say loving herself, being very intimate with herself. That's the ideal. That's the thing to aim for. Really? Like that's what we want to tell young girls life is all about. That's what it means to be a woman. Really? That sounds tragic. (laughs) That sounds not like how we ourselves got here in the first place. Or if we did, any of us with a whole lot of that mixed in, maybe that's why we have such dysfunctional ideas about men and women and ourselves and one another and God and our purpose. And that's why we sing breathy and depressing songs. What was I made for? Before we wrap up though, I want to leave you with a little more on the difference between comedy and tragedy. Let's end on a more substantive note and not end picking on the Barbie movie and feminism. Let's just talk about what is the agreed on definition of comedy. And let's ask the question, was Barbie actually a comedy? Yes or no. So from Wikipedia, the article for comedy reads that comedy is a genre of fiction that consists of discourses or works intended to be humorous or amusing by inducing laughter, especially in theater, film, stand-up comedy, television, radio, books, or any other entertainment medium. The term originated in ancient Greece. In Athenian democracy, the public opinion of voters was influenced by political satire performed by comic poets in theaters. The theatrical genre of Greek comedy can be described as a dramatic performance pitting two groups, ages, genders, or societies against each other in an amusing agon or conflict. Northrop Fry depicted these two opposing sides as a society of youth and a society of the old. A revised view characterizes the essential agon of comedy as a struggle between a relatively powerless youth and the societal conventions posing obstacles to his hopes. In this struggle, the youth then becomes constrained by his lack of social authority and is left with little choice but to resort to ruses which engender dramatic irony, which provokes laughter. Satire and political satire use comedy to portray people or social institutions as ridiculous or corrupt, thus alienating their audience from the object of their humor. Parody subverts popular genres and forms, critiquing those forms without necessarily condemning them. Other forms of comedy include screwball comedy, which derives its humor largely from bizarre, surprising, and improbable situations or characters, and black comedy, which is characterized by a form of humor that includes darker aspects of human behavior or human nature. Similarly, scatological humor, sexual humor, and race humor create comedy by violating social conventions or taboos in comic ways, which can often be taken as offensive by the subjects of said joke. A comedy of manners typically takes as its subject a particular part of socially, usually upper-class society, and uses humor to parody or satirize the behavior and mannerisms of its members. Romantic comedy is a popular 
genre that depicts burgeoning romance in humorous terms and focuses on the foibles of those who are falling in love. So that's the opening section introducing comedy from Wikipedia. There's a lot more to it, but we won't read the rest for the sake of time. Let me just emphasize that there's a structure to comedy generally. It's a type of drama. It's a type. Tragedy is a different type. Comedy can definitely emphasize conflict, as we just read. It also definitely can include setbacks. But typically, the structure of a comedy involves the end result, the end state of the protagonist or the main character, one you're supposed to be rooting for being as good or better as at the beginning of the story. There are setbacks, there's conflict, there's some problem introduced, or maybe a series of problems that all add up to one problem, but then there's a resolution, and by the end of it, you're left with something of a happy feeling, even if it took some bumpy roads to get there. Not to say that Aristotle's is the final word on this, but Aristotle taught we find this from Wikipedia in the article about comedy under the section Western history. Aristotle taught that comedy was generally positive for society since it brings forth happiness, which for Aristotle was the ideal state, the final goal in any activity. For Aristotle, a comedy did not need to involve sexual humor. A comedy is about the fortunate rise of a sympathetic character. Aristotle divides comedy into three categories or subgenres, farce, romantic comedy, and satire. On the other hand, Plato taught that comedy is a destruction to the self. He believed that it produces an emotion that overrides rational self-control and learning. In the Republic, he says that the guardians of the state should avoid laughter. Quote, for ordinarily when one abandons himself to violent laughter, his condition provokes a violent reaction. End quote. Plato says comedy should be tightly controlled if one wants to achieve the ideal state. And oh, by the way, this might be some clue as to why some things that are considered very funny by conservatives are censored online the hardest. The funnier they are, the more tightly they're censored because the ideal state, according to the progressives, is to push the conservative ideas off in preference for a vision of the good life common to the progressives, a vision of the good life that the ideal state is going to further. But notice especially this idea of the fortunate rise of a sympathetic character. That being key. I agree with that view of comedy. It doesn't have to be sexual humor. A lot of comedies do have quite a lot of sexual humor or scatological humor. But I think the best comedies don't play on sex and gross gags in a cheap way. They can do better. Was the Barbie movie a comedy? Well, before we decide, if we accept and admit that there's essentially two kinds of drama, there's comedy and there's tragedy in the classical sense from a theatrical performance standpoint, let's look at the Wikipedia article for tragedy. 
There we find tragedy from the Greek. Tragoidia is a genre of drama based on human suffering and mainly the terrible or sorrowful events that befall a main character. Traditionally, the intention of tragedy is to invoke an accompanying catharsis or a pain that awakens pleasure for the audience. While many cultures have developed forms that provoke this paradoxical response, the term tragedy often refers to a specific tradition of drama that has played a unique and important role historically in the self-definition of Western civilization. That tradition has been multiple and discontinuous, yet the term has often been used to invoke a powerful effect of cultural identity and historical continuity. Quote, the Greeks and the Elizabethans in one cultural form, Hellenes and Christians in a common activity, as Raymond Williams puts it. From its origins in the theater of ancient Greece 2,500 years ago, from which there survives only a fraction of the work of Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, as well as many fragments from other poets and the later Roman tragedies of Seneca, through its singular articulations in the works of Shakespeare, Lope de Vega, Jean Racine, and Frederick Schiller, to the more recent naturalistic tragedy of Heinrich Ibsen and Auguste Strindberg, Samuel Beckett's modernist mediations on death, loss, and suffering, Heiner Müller's postmodernist reworkings of the tragic canon, tragedy has remained an important site of cultural experimentation, negotiation, struggle, and change. A long line of philosophers, which includes Plato, Aristotle, St. Augustine, or St. Augustine, as I prefer, Voltaire, Hume, Diderot, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, Freud, Benjamin, Camus, Lycan, and Deleuze have analyzed, speculated upon, and criticized the genre. In the wake of Aristotle's Poetics, 335 BCE, or as I like to say, BC, before Christ, we all know what we're talking about when you say common era, tragedy has been used to make genre distinctions, whether at the scale of poetry in general, where the tragic divides against epic and lyric, or at the scale of the drama, where tragedy is opposed to comedy. In the modern era, tragedy has also been defined against drama, melodrama, the tragic comic and epic theater. Drama in the narrow sense cuts across the traditional division between comedy and tragedy in an anti or a generic deterritorialization from the mid-19th century onward. Both Bertois, Brecht, and Augusto Boll define their epic theater projects, non-Aristotelian drama and theater of the oppressed, respectively, against models of tragedy. Texado, however, reads epic theater as an incorporation of tragic functions and its treatments of mourning and speculation. Now, with that definition in mind, key in on one special detail here. Tragedy is defined by human suffering, mainly the terrible or sorrowful events that befall a main character. The intention of tragedy is to invoke an accompanying catharsis or, quote, pain that awakens pleasure, end quote, for the audience. I believe, this is my view, that the Barbie movie is actually a tragedy masquerading as a comedy. And the fact that it has some funny bits in it should not lead you astray. Don't let that throw you off the scent of the trail. It was a tragedy. But whether I think it's a tragedy and the makers of the film categorized it as a comedy, and most people would say that it was a comedy because they laughed ever in it, much less several times, really is decided on whether you think the end result for the main character, namely Barbie, played by Margot Robbie, was better than the beginning result, or at least as good as the beginning result of her circumstances to that point. 
What was her condition at the beginning of the film? Happy. Aristotle would say that's the ideal state. She was happy. And you might say, well, she's happy at the end too. Yeah, but is she headed for more and more happiness? And you might say, well, that's not fair, right? You're reaching beyond the scope of the story and that's speculative. Life is just going to be ups and downs. But why is she happy at the end? Why she's happy at the end is because she's become disenchanted. She's embraced the liquidity. I don't want anything to change, she says. And she's supposed to be the voice of conservative women, I suppose, at that juncture. I don't want anything to change. But that's all life is, is change, she's told in reply. But then that's to affirm the modern project emphasizing liquidity. Everything's changing all the time. That's why we have to keep changing everything all the time. If we're not changing all the time, well, then we might have time to reflect on the consequences of our changes to this point. But then you've embraced evolutionary thinking to assume that how we got to now is just constant change that sometimes randomly results in positive changes. And so you try and hold on to the random positive changes. And if you don't make it, well, then survival of the fittest, that's just life. We'll move on. If I'm correct as a Christian believing that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In six days, he created them and rested on the seventh. And he saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. That is the ideal state. And all of human history, in fact, if the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, and I believe that it is, the true account of who God is, what he's done, what he will do, what he is doing, then for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, for the people of God, all of human history will turn out to have been a comedy. But for those who made war on God, who chose unbelief, who chose rebellion and preferred loving themselves and loving pleasure rather than loving what is good, rejoicing with the truth, fearing God and keeping his commandments, loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving their neighbor as themselves in obedience, actually self-actualizing to the fullest thereby because that's what they were created to do. It's what their purpose is. That's what they were made for. If I'm correct to view it that way, well, then those who reject all of the above, they choose destruction. They choose nihilism. They choose meaningless sensationalism and emotivism over substance, and ultimately it destroys them. They choose death. Not that death is chosen for them, although it may be as a mercy every now and then that their life is brought to an abrupt close sooner than they expected. It may be a mercy to them, actually, but it may also be a mercy to everybody else as an object lesson that this is actually bent on destruction. This is not how the universe is so composed. You've chosen evil. And you get evil consequences and other people need to not go along with you here so that they won't. We'll see that this brings death. Think back with me before we close, because I am running out of time here and I'm pretty much out of time, but not before I come full circle. We see the appreciative worth of investing the beginning of this episode in 2 Kings chapter 7 and a discussion for the first 20 minutes of this podcast, an investment in reading it and considering it. The captain of the king's guard says, whose hand the king leaned on, he said to the man of God, in response to, hear the word of Yahweh, thus says Yahweh tomorrow about this time. At the gate of Samaria, a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel. The captain said, if Yahweh himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? If anybody laughed, was that a comedy? In the moment, oh, 
<laughs> That's a funny. Yeah. If Yahweh himself should make the windows in heaven, could this thing be? You weren't listening, or you were, and you just rejected it, and you think you can make a joke at God's expense, and you think you can make a mockery of what it is that God has just said through me, he's going to do tomorrow. You'll see. You will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat of it. It isn't funny for this captain when it turns out that the Syrians have fled. I think there's a growing sense that, ooh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Ah, whatever. It's probably just a coincidence. Then the people trample him to death. He dies. Who's laughing now? It's not funny, is it? No. No, it's not funny. What is funny is the four lepers who just stumble across this camp and find that the Syrians have all left and they're living it up. They're living their best life now. And then they realize, ah, you know, this isn't good. This is, this is bad that we haven't told anybody else yet. Yeah, you're right. It's a comedy for them and you feel some sympathy for them. And according to the form of comedy, if we're going to use the word, we should probably adhere to the form. Comedy is about the fortunate rise of a sympathetic character. Here are these four characters, these four lepers. We see a fortunate rise for them. Tragedy is what happens to Barbie. And if you know that, then it's not funny. You're not laughing at the end. You're sad. And you're not just sad for Barbie. You're sad for the people who made the Barbie film. And you're sad for the people who watch this and do laugh at the end. And I'll leave you with just this thought. I'm not saying all of everything that I've just said about Barbie being critical, analyzing it to overthink anything. But I think most of us, when we entertain, we entertain carelessly. Films just like this. We entertain, we have guests in our home, so to speak, metaphorically, because that's the origin of the term entertainment also. It used to mean, it meant for most of history, that you were a host to somebody who was passing through and you said, oh, come on in, yeah, have a meal. We've got a guest room. Do you have any place to stay? Yeah, just stay here tonight. Now, entertainment means somebody else's ideas are a guest in your head. And we're careless about who it is that we invite in by way of their ideas. We don't watch them carefully enough. We don't vet them carefully enough, these ideas of other people, to see whether they're going to plunder our home, rob us, maybe even do us violence, and throw us out of our own home. In the case of films like this, this film in particular, specifically, but not just this film, we need to be very careful as we entertain certain ideas that we think rightly about them and that we're testing and measuring them against truth to see whether they're good. Will these lead to a good result? Yes or no? How do we know? And just like Billie Eilish is singing the song, what was I made for? You should ask the question, what was the movie made for? What was the song made for that Billie Eilish is singing? What was the movie made for? Why was it written this way? Why was it filmed this way? Why was it promoted this way? For that matter, the toy that is the feature of the film, why was it made the way that it was made? Why is Barbie all about career and fashion and enjoying herself? And why in the film is it an apology to weird Barbie for saying it behind her back and also to her face that she's weird Barbie, but Midge gets no apology. And Midge is the one who's pregnant. We're for women. We're for women's empowerment, except if the woman happens to want to embrace getting married 
and having a whole bunch of kids. My wife, that was the single biggest thing she was upset and offended about. She hated the movie, by the way. Hated it. Ask her her thoughts on it for more. But she's like, I basically am Midge. I, I basically am the punchline of that film. And apparently they think I'm either brainwashed or ugly and weird. And you know what? That's the modern project's message to wives and mothers. You're doing it wrong. And all the while, every portrayal that they <laughs> give us of empowered women, the women look miserable. And they say, oh, we were played with too hard. Yeah. And whose arms did you run into? You ran into the arms of people who told you on the front end that they were going to play with you as hard as pleased them. And the whole siren song was that if you ran into their arms, then you could also play with life as hard as you wanted to. And if it turns out that actually you're used up, your hair's weird, it's fallen out, it's all burnt, face is all marked up, you're not pretty, and you're lonely. If it turns out that that's the end result, maybe at a certain point, the way forward needs to be, let's go back and let's double check the math. Maybe some of these ideas that were communicated through the vehicle of toys or film or music, maybe some of these ideas were not true and they've not produced a good end. And maybe we should ask God, start with asking God, because who would know except the person who made us in the film, the creator of Barbie is who weighs in. And that's significant. In the real world, we should be asking God who made us. But we'll get into that more in our next episode. And in all future episodes, I pray, Lord willing, we'll have many more. It'd be super fun to get to a thousand. Wouldn't that be a great adventure? As Peter Pan says. But that's all the time I've got for this one. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.